Hey folks, it's Weaver here, after the fact. Uh, we accidentally filmed this episode for two hours, which is probably three times longer than we were intending to record. So we ended up having to split it into two parts. This is part two, and as such, since we didn't realize we were gonna have to split it into two parts at the time, uh, it doesn't really have a regular intro. So we're just gonna jump right into it. Anyway, I think we need to kind of refocus. So <laughs> yeah, back to Kenna. Um, so, um, <laughs> All right. So um, anyway, so what are your thoughts? Like we know that you talk a lot of, I'm sorry, I have these goddamn hiccups and it like came up the worst time. And so, um, but I know you talk a lot about Jordan Peele and a lot about Black Core in general. So like, just, just dump. What are your thoughts? We want to hear. I, I would yeah, also, I mean, I would also like to hear your thoughts specifically. I know you talked about this briefly in Primordium, but like you did a, uh, uh, like a screening of Get Out at your PWI. And that was like, a really bad experience. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I want to um, hear about that. <laughs> so I think, kind of just starting generally, I think one of the most, um, one of the most groundbreaking things that I think Jordan Peele's been able to do as a black filmmaker is he has, through like visual imagery and his very unique brand of storytelling, he has broken through this curse that I feel like so many black creators get stuck in where all of their work gets and, and I don't want to say trivialized because I feel like that word has a negative connotation but but a lot of times black creators work kind of gets digested down to being about white supremacy or about racism because that's the part that white people are able to identify and so a lot of times like the themes that we were talking about earlier of disassociation um, or like Get Out also deals very heavily with a lot of like very specific black fears that are related to whiteness but are not necessarily about the fear of racism like a huge part of the reason why jordan peele wanted to use like therapy and the mom being a therapist and hypnotherapy as a method of bringing him under is because there is a lot of stigma about going to get therapy in the black community particularly if you're in a religious portion of the black community and so jordan peele um has i think he's one of the first black filmmakers who's been able to like really break through that like even white critics got that nope was not just about white supremacy and i don't know if any of you have seen nope but it yeah, except yeah. logan paul yeah. <laughs> I've, I've thought of nothing else i haven't seen it yet it's but I absolutely I seen it, yes. phenomenal <laughs> it's one of those movies that i think one of the thoughts that I was having while watching it that almost made me laugh is it felt like a movie made specifically for black content creators because it's very much kind oh, of like yes. a movie about making movies. But really what it's about is it's about gazes and it's about looking and it's about how the way that we look at things changes those things. And specifically, it's about, um, this is something that Bell Hooks talks about a lot in her film theory, the oppositional gaze, and the fact that historically Black people have been denied the right to look, and that looking is something that Black people were historically punished for. And so the idea of looking and making eye contact and how that can be an act of aggression or perceived as such is a really huge theme. With a lot of Jordan Peele's work, but particularly Nope. Um, and that movie... The monster really is chasing spectacle. Like the thing that you yes. are supposed to be afraid of, the thing that you are supposed to be reviled by in that movie isn't necessarily Jean Jacket, which is what they nicknamed the UFO, which I love. That's also the most insanely incredible design I've seen in a movie <laughs> in <laughs> years. In Jean Jacket inspired. Incredibly insane. excited to find Insane. Also, the thing is, is like, oh, yeah. I couldn't even give you the context as well yeah you you the just cowboy hat was the promo mm. image and also also like i realized side note before kenna just doesn't stop talking um i also realized um that the without spoiling i also realized you know who else had an identical cowboy hat to um to that character it was um uh their father yeah their father yep yeah yep. their father had the same hat on the same jordan peele knows Insane. how to draw visual connections like very few other directors uh, like yep. genuinely from a filmmaking standpoint very few directors are able to kind of put together a cohesive enough aesthetic and like mm -hmm. image like an imagery aesthetic that's able to connect things like that like Jordan mm -hmm. Peele hands you all of the pieces without telling you what the movie's about and it's my favorite thing about his work um 
But yeah, I think the difference in perspective in black horror versus white horror is, again, it's a part of why Birth of a Nation is so key in the conversation about black horror theory. Um, because one of the things that I noticed while watching Get Out with a predominantly white audience is the same thing that I noticed while watching Birth of the Nation with a predominantly white audience uh, is that mm. me and my classmates were having two vastly different experiences, even though, like, mm. even most of my classmates were like, probably the hardest I've ever laughed after a film screening. We finished Birth of a Nation, which, mind you, this movie's four hours long, so we have just spent two full days of class screening the most racist movie ever made. The lights come up. up. It The movie, like, ends on a lynching and, like, the clan being celebrated, so it's a real weird fucking energy in the room. It's <laughs> 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 so the light comes up. It's real quiet, and there's this dude who sit right next to me and he was British. I have no idea. This man was from Rockville, Maryland, but he was British. <laughs> and he goes, well, that wasn't very good, was it? And that was the only noise that got made in the room. for the addiction. And the oh white guy God. next to him goes, yeah, that sucked. And that was it. That was the only conversation my class had. Wow. Because the bell, or not the bell, because we were in college, but like the lecture period ended and we all just left on that weird ass energy. But something that I was talking about with my professor and something that he told me another black student had told him before mm. was that watching Birth of a Nation in a theater with white people is a it's like a traumatizing experience because mm. you're sitting there and you have no way to know how much of it they agree with, how much of it they're buying into. A huge part of what that movie kicked off is the wave of like based on a true story or like historical dramas being considered the Oscar standard. That's something we don't think about a lot is how because Birth of a Nation was one of the first Hollywood blockbusters and it was so well received by white people critically, like Woodrow Wilson screened it at the White House. It has set forth the standard for Oscar bait. Most of the things that are featured in Birth of a Nation are things that will get you an Academy Award. It's like black trauma. That's the only way you're getting into the Academy Awards if you're a Black actor. It's historical dramas, war stories. Birth of a Nation encapsulates all those things. And then also the famous, most successful Hollywood formula is White Guy Succeeds in Love and Business, which is also essentially mm-hmm. what Birth of a Nation is about. It's just about the business of lynching Black people. Um, yeah. And also has the music, just not to interrupt, but it has the musical aspect too. It's one of the first um, movies to have synchronized sound and it's a soundtrack, like that synchronized music that goes along with it. Um, and it it literally impacts how like soundtracks are made even today. Like yeah. it's yeah. it's hugely influential, even though it's a piece of shit movie. <laughs> yeah, and that's the really funny thing is that Birth of a Nation, in my humble opinion, this is a bit of a tangent, introduced the idea of using a soundtrack and then just didn't do it right because yeah. they don't even use the best part of In the Hall of the mountain king i was <laughs> floored like the the most famous part the like the big da 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 they don't use it it's the best part of the whole damn song and it's not even in the like if you're gonna make me watch propaganda civil war movies can you at least and you know that that comes that tradition of scoring comes from prior to that well, prior to when we had synchronized sound they would show silent movies and then they would have live music like silent movies weren't actually silent people don't understand that like when you see a silent movie it wasn't actually silent when you were in the theater somebody was playing like an organ or something and there were certain like cheat sheets that they would have with like pieces of music That's that okay so for like a, a cave scene play hall in the mountain king and for this scene if it's supposed to be scary play this song and that's so that's how that's where we got some of those musical I've done things. a lot of uh, research into vaudeville and like theater like theatrical history especially like black vaudeville but I remember and also uh, the history of Atlanta and theaters in Atlanta and I remember the screening of Birth of a Nation in Atlanta specifically um, I just you know it's not like super interesting here in this context but I remember like learning specific things about like which Atlanta theaters screened it and like the the response in the paper so like it's, it was interesting to see like that intersect with my area of research um, but one thing I wanted mm-hmm. to uh, t- talk to Kenna about was um, something that I thought was interesting in Get Out was the way that 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 people were sort of like snapped out of the sunken place by like seeing the light um with the camera flash i thought that was really fascinating and it made me wonder because when he first 
when the the camera first flashed uh, on like Lakeith Stanfield's character, who I'm fucking in love with, by the way. I have so much gender envy for Lakeith Stanfield. His whole vibe is also lack of Darius from Atlanta is autistic. Gender. Both, yeah. Also that. But like the, the <laughs> idea that that he's like, oh well, he's just a stoner, and it's like yeah. everyone in Atlanta smokes weed, but he is the only one that's like that. Um, and exactly. the autism baby <laughs> but um uh no when when in uh the the camera flashes and it like snaps like keith stanfield's character out of it dre um uh, chris acts like surprised like he didn't remember turning the flash on on his camera and i was wondering if that was like an intentional implication that georgina when she had been messing with his phone previously and like unplugged it from the charger if she had turned the flash on i wondered that and if that was like an intentional clue if like the 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 white grandma in georgina unplugged the phone but georgina the like still present Mm -hmm. black person had turned the flash on you know as like a to like help him in the future I need to rewatch the movie. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, that would be very interesting. One of the things, yeah, one of the things that I think is so interesting about Get Out premise, um, and also its execution is like one of the huge ways that Black horror distinguishes itself um, from White horror is the protagonist having a sense of agency. Because one of the biggest disconnects that gets created. And what Bell Hooks is really talking about with the oppositional gaze is the fact that because Black people just walk around with a higher level of anxiety and a higher level of consciousness of their surroundings and how they're being perceived, when white people act the way they do in horror movies, it gets received entirely differently. Like, I mentioned this in the Primordium chat, but something I think is very funny is that prior to this massive wave of Black horror we got, I feel like one of the biggest jokes black people were making in pop culture was about how stupid white people are in horror movies and that that analysis of why would you go somewhere that's why are you trespassing in the first Mm -hmm. place why are you going somewhere you're not supposed to be and being surprised it ends well that's the oppositional gaze that's what Mm -hmm. bell hooks is talking about it's the fact that because you walk around being black and having a completely different set of experiences when you receive a story that's not speaking to that experience you don't see like the final girl in a horror movie as just a poor sweet girl who got caught up in the wrong story and keeps like, making mistakes. Like, well, why did she? Choose you to see, be in that it, you're in like, place? it's your fault for going down the hallway when it, yeah, there was exactly. a, a sign like in blood saying, "Don't go down this hallway, you're gonna die." <laughs> the same thing, like playfully, <laughs> playfully making fun of like white people who are like thrill seekers, like bungee jumpers or skydivers. It's oh. like you don't have enough yeah. fear in your exactly. life that you have to <laughs> yeah, manufacture exactly. it. You have yeah. to go seeking yeah. it out just to feel something. Whereas we live in fear 24-7 and we don't mm-hmm. need any more of it. We, we aren't going to. Oh. So it was interesting that Get Out sort of sets that up. We're like, you can tell that Chris knows something's up, but it's this societal pressure. Like the only reason like, you know, a black man would do something that like, you know, instinctively he knows like this is probably going to be shit. It's because of like the peer pressure of like, well, this is my girlfriend's family you know yeah. like it's mm-hmm. that extra sort of like social expectation of like well you know mm-hmm. people are gonna gonna act weird if if you know i don't go then i'm gonna be the bad yeah guy. and the way that they play yeah. that up in the way that the characters like for instance when chris first brings up the um the old lady uh unplugging his phone or whatever and he's just like curious about it and she's like oh i'll have to talk to her about that and he's like whoa no 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 it's not that big a deal like he doesn't want to get this black lady in trouble like <laughs> Which is like one of many times that that happens in that movie as well, because I mean, they ran into a cop on the way there. And like that was that was a whole thing of like they run over the buck, et cetera, et cetera. But like, um, which, by the way, in it d- 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 layers, but like um, they can talk about the, those layers also. Yes, <laughs> yes I this is this is all buck. me leading the, up the, to the asking again, yes. like, a question. <laughs> um, but like um, like the sim- the double symbolism between like the the black man and and the buck versus like the way that Rose's brother treats him and, and etc. Like, um, and also the way that everybody the buck treats him mounted enough. on the wall to like kill the dad. That was yes, I love that iconic. But um, also like there's um, 
uh, one that's that kind of like situation that uh, sort of like oh it's it's just more effort than it's worth to say something is something that is brought up for the first and for some people the most obvious time in the movie but not the last time which is literally just um don't talk to this cop like i'm gonna just get out i'm gonna do whatever he says it's whatever and then rose being the 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 good white girlfriend ally is like no 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 no. i'm gonna stand up for you meanwhile she eats her cereal separate from her milk to keep the colors in the, in the white <laughs> she, separate she stands but, uh, him to stop the paper trail because if the cop exactly. had written them a ticket it would have been a paper trail that's why she did that exactly yeah. like that's, that's the whole she just trail. didn't want the paper trail exactly. yeah <laughs> my so my 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 question is uh Do, would you right it, it uh it was a, a thing from when we were talking about birth of the nation but like the intentional sort of like hyper awareness of of being um i forget exactly what it is i'll ask you in a second when i remember if i remember i hope i remember uh <laughs> but uh sorry in the in the meantime kind of just do whatever it is you you gotta like yeah yeah okay yeah well <laughs> um i think the i don't know I, I think one of the most interesting things about black horror as a genre um, is that much like Afrofuturism and a lot of other Black originated genres, it has a lot to do with the reclamation of identity. Um, and one of the things that we talked about a lot when I was taking horror film classes in college, and one of the things that my professor would marvel over is he was always so confused as to why most of his horror film classes were women, queer people, and the very few non-white people at our institution very frequently gravitated towards horror classes. And what is so interesting about that is that the alignment of the marginalized and the monster is something that stretches as far back as not just horror film, but horror stories and monsters go. Even um, just fairy tales like, in general. Like, yeah, Frankenstein. fairy like, the tales. Whole, the whole point of Frankenstein was like, he was misunderstood and he wanted a family. And like Victor was like, mm-hmm. fuck that, you're scary. And he's like, well, yeah, but you made him that way. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, well, and also like historically, because horror has always come from the perspective of white wealthy people a lot of times what white wealthy people feel are marginalized people and so like one of the things that often gets lost when you're talking about vampire lore and why so much of it ties back to them being weak to particularly christian mythology is that some of the most prevalent movie vampires dracula and nosferatu were specifically developed to be anti-semitic stand-ins like nosferatu and dracula those stories are entirely about the fear of foreigners and the fear of um, Jewish people taking economic control and that kind of, like, a lot of times vampires get read as fears of the bourgeoisie, and that's, exactly, it's a lot of blood libel, it's a lot of, um, there's also heavy alignment of, like, the lesbian vampire trope. That comes out of the alignment of vampires kind of being, like, the sex symbols of the monster world, Mm -hmm. and queer people Mm -hmm. tend to be heavily sexualized. And so, you know, birth of a nation, a man America's first movie monster was black people. You also see that in The Creature from the Black Lagoon. You see it in Candyman. And so a huge part of the reason that so many marginalized, queer, disabled, black people, women gravitate towards monsters is because in a way we recognize that they're us. Yeah, a lot of times in a how, horror that's movie. That's how the outside world treats yeah. us and sees us. I exactly. was literally just yeah. trying to explain to my brother two days ago why gay people love Halloween so much. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, like, the, the, the one are coded, time I can look as weird as I want to and it's encouraged. Mm. Two, it's the one time we kind of celebrate the villains. And I think, yeah. interestingly yeah. enough, one of the ways that horror kind of got off the beat because the thing that always drives me nuts about horror is that like you look at 1968 night of the living dead it feels like horror is lining up to be like one of the most progressive genres and then the exorcist Mm -hmm. comes out and that just goes down the toilet because the exorcist Mm -hmm. was just like purely courting middle class white christian america it's a very like the fear is like kind of about evil, but that evil is deliberately and inexplicably aligned with brown people. Like I watched that movie for the first time, and the second it started in Iran, I was like, "What the fuck are we doing?" Ancient Indian burial like, ground, anyone? Exactly. Oh, it's the yeah. exact yeah. Same I don't even thing. remember much about yeah. The Exorcist, but I do know it was the first <laughs> horror movie I ever watched. I was probably like in elementary school, and my two older siblings that lived with us at the time um like snuck into my room later that night to like whisper scary shit and like just like make scary noises outside the door just to freak me out so i couldn't sleep and that was like my first horror experience <laughs> and so that's why i was like, i didn't oh, see horror. 
Yeah, I didn't see Exorcist till college. When I was when I was a little baby, my mother took me to the theater to see um, Jimmy Bones, and that was that's what that was. I was a tiny little baby. It's it's a black supernatural horror film. Um, Snoop Dogg's in it, (laughs) and um, all I remember is that I all I remember is that I went home could not stop staring at all the dark corners and i was like i don't think this genre is for me at that point i was already traumatized enough by just being a a child um and like having the environment that i was like having as a child but i was like i don't i don't think i like this genre very much it's a little spooky i don't think i want to do that (laughs) sidebar about jimmy bones one of the things that i think is the most fun about jimmy bones is that he is very much like a black horror answer to a lot of super popular slasher villains in the 80s and 90s, like Freddy Krueger. Um, mm-hmm. I can't believe I just forgot all of their names. Jason from Friday the 13th. Like, Jimmy Bones was very much... Yeah, mm-hmm. very much meant to be one of those, like, distinctive horror villains who you look at and you're like, I would know him anywhere. I will mm-hmm. fear that man for the rest of my life. Yeah. I've carried that fear with me. It worked. And yeah. I never tried to go back and watch it ever. <laughs> I know it's crazy. Now I know who Snoop Dogg is and I can like, I, 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 I must have repressed the fact that it was Snoop Dogg because I, I completely, like I had to Google it to make sure that I was, because sometimes um, in my family we say Jimmy Jones instead for some reason. Um, and so, <laughs> and so like I had to Google it just now to make sure and I was like, oh, Snoop Dogg's in this movie. Meanwhile, it's the thing that like traumatized me as a little baby. <laughs> completely unrelated, but once my mom was trying to... Yeah. Once my mom was trying to tell my my two older siblings that the the ones in high school that she's like, oh, I can come chaperone the the school dance. She's like, I can cut a rug. I can drop it like it's hot. And they're like, no, no, no. That's not what that means. <laughs> Don't ever say that again. <laughs> oh my god. On the reference of like what Ken was saying about how like a lot of these villains and stuff in horror are either like uh, queer coded or they are anti-Semitic or they are like disabled. Like that speaks to I was re- uh, yeah or all three. I was reading a book. Um, called uh disfigured by i think ann ludic and it was written by a woman who is she has cerebral palsy so she's disabled and she was talking about how like historically so many fairy tales not even just horror stories but just fairy tales in general are designed to villainize the different and specifically and most often to villainize the disabled like most of the if you look think about like the, a lot of the classic um fairy tales so much of it like the that bad guy or the person who is villainized in the narrative is lame or they're deaf or they can't speak or they have a physical disability and even now in a lot of horror movies a lot of horror movies, disfigured faces or they walk with a limp or they're in some way disabled either intellectually or physically like there is so much disability coding in fairy tales telling and like the way that like things were you know werewolves come back to like people having tuberculosis and not understanding what that meant and like oh they look like they're like sucking blood because they're so solid their cheeks are narrow and it's because they you know they're dying of tuberculosis but we didn't know that at the time and it's just like <laughs> even the the guy in get out that like buys the rights to uh chris was a blind man and i think that even though it was really oh, that shit was in the crazy. fact that chris was a photographer like it was relevant and it like it added to the story it still like doesn't exist in a vacuum yeah Um, right absolutely crutches and spice on tiktok talks about you know the ugly laws it used to be illegal for people Mm -hmm. with disabilities and like facial deformities to just exist in public because their mere existence was considered like disturbing the peace and it was a sort of like Mm -hmm. forced isolation or even just the alternative aesthetic, like the idea of punk. Like I, we were, I made a video about this not too long ago. I was talking about how, isn't it funny how like, if you watch like the old shows from like the eighties and nineties and stuff, you watch the Disney channel, whatever, the bully always looks like a punk, right? Like yeah. black leather jacket and like a spiked collar or whatever. But in reality, it's like, I, get, I have had much worse experiences <laughs> from clean cut white guys named Chad than I have from like yeah. dudes who dress like that. Like, Usually like people who dress like that are chill. Like, the villain was yeah. the white, the, the, the villain <laughs> Literally, was- 
it was literally, a white guy literally, and everybody was like oh, oh my it, you know eddie munson must I, be the serial killer because he wears black and plays D. <laughs> <laughs> okay 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 we're gonna have to i was i was gonna suggest it before uh after like um in the in the sort of like uh close encounters like private discord server that we have like yesterday we kind of went off on a tangent about like fandom culture and i brought up stranger things so i would like to have a co- like a it should yes. be a, we'll, it's probably we'll, gonna be we'll like a hyper focus thing that i go off of yeah. yes but we um so, so it, much about it's <laughs> there <laughs> but okay so i did this, this it's just so like it's just it's just because the villain is always the person that like it's, it's always, always so shocking white guy no it's always so shocking to audiences when the villain ends up being this like clean cut like it's middle class american person but it's like and, and, and no exactly it's like and also like i think that they did like a really really um i was talking to my my other partner um my my arch nemesis um the other day about like why does everybody laugh when i say that um but like it's, it's yeah, funny I know, I know. to follow up my partner with my arch nemesis i, I know we've got like you. an enemies and lovers vibe going on it's very that. nice but um so there's we we were talking about the the way that they um she was talking about how happy she was that they didn't shy away from the satanic panic thing or like how um like, I think intentional in a way that a lot of other folks wouldn't have been at the very least with um, Eddie Munson's character, um, who I've been able to I've been able to think about little else since like that time of year. Like I, the entirety of my year has just been like um, thinking super, super deeply about like Eddie Munson's character as well. And it's it's literally just like I saw a take um, that Straw Hat Goofy had a couple takes that Straw Hat Goofy had responded to on um, TikTok uh, about. Um, uh, it was it was about how people um, who identified and came from the same world as Jason were like, well, you know, Jason's the hero of his story and it's not about race and you're thinking too much into it. And it's like, no, but but it is. It's like Jason might not have been um, Billy. Huh? Uh, <clears throat> uh, Jason might not have been Billy. Um, but, um, not, like, you know, better. it's still it was just like a different yeah, no, aesthetic, exa- but the same sentiment. It is. It is still layered, like the his 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 violence towards Lucas is still violence yeah, I think, towards uh, Lucas. Not Wildland on TikTok mentioned something about how like every you know everybody loves Chrissy Cunningham, but it is still the perceived mm-hmm. innocence of a white woman that yeah it directly causes violence against Let's a black man leave. because it's after. I'm just Lucas. over here having not seen Stranger Things. <laughs> <laughs> it's after Lucas says like Chrissy uh chrissy went over to eddie's house willingly because she was gonna buy drugs and he was like no chrissy yeah. would never do that how dare you it yeah. was the perceived literally yeah. naivete the perceived innocence mm-hmm. the desire for a white man to protect the honor of a white woman yeah. that caused the violence against a black man yeah and like the irreversible um decision to be actively violent towards um lucas and also i think that says like something generally like she was yeah. a child like she was first off erica sinclair iconic um and also missed opportunity because a lot of people in the fandom don't talk enough about how how much eddie and erica would have been bffs like have you seen that scene where like eddie's like accepting her into hellfire they would have been bffs he was like so accepting after like doing his little his little putting on airs thing also i love erica's character but like i i think it's it's also um and circling back because i'm gonna end this with a question for kenna if i remember the question this time um is like it's 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 like i think it also says something um it says a lot uh about the ways in which like lucas has this insane journey with conformity as the only black character and like it's also very easy to see when you're coming at it from that lens why he makes the decisions that he makes why he does and says the things that he does like i was going back like i'm i'm starting a rewatch of of stranger things that's going slower than i would like it to um but like i was like you know looking back at lucas in season one and the way that he regards l as this potential threat the way that immediately he was the one who was like will's dead we have to accept that he is put in this position that none of the other kids are put in um of having to accept hard truths right like in the i I saw something i haven't fact checked it yet but apparently like in season one the duffer brothers or the writers originally had it so that at like one point like lucas would have been called a slur and also side note i would have um or had slurs like thrown at him and also i i would like there to be a lot more payoff um for lucas uh after all of the violence that 
we see displayed towards him. Um, but speaking back on violence is like, my thing is like the, the conformity, the conditional acceptance of assimilation of, of people that have been othered, right? Um, is, is something that's very interesting, especially for characters in any kind of like horror, supernatural kind of whatever, um, as, as, um, as something that is, is, is just that is conditional, right? Like Lucas is accepted by Jason conditionally, right? Like he's, he like, and, and so often in media, we see that this is, and also that adds a, a, a layer of horror um, to characters like Lucas, because you are, you are knowing that by going against this thing, you are inviting violence into your life in a way that it's not, go that will not be erased. Um, and in a way that's not like once you are assimilate and then betray the folks that are allowing you to assimilate, it is not a violence that you can get away from. It sticks with you for the rest of your life. So we are um, going to, you know, continue to promote our various uh social platforms those are all going to be in the description also uh i'm going to take this moment to plug awesome socks club it is a uh it is a product by my mutual um hank green with the green brothers you know and um it's uh a whole the whole purpose of it is to uh sell the sock subscriptions and it's only open yeah <laughs> and it's only um the sign up window is only open for a limited period of time uh but you can sign up for like a year's worth of it's like a sock subscription service all of the socks are designed by various artists um and those artists are paid and all of the money the profit goes towards uh sierra leone and helping make um childhood mortality rates like lower them like help uh with maternal care in sierra leone um and so it's a really cool you know solid uh, ethical project that i've worked with before and i have a uh link which i'll put in the description if i remember to do so which um is like a an affiliate link so it does help me out a little bit but it also you know helps the good cause and you can go and get socks and the socks really are very nice very comfortable socks so i'd like to plug that in <laughs> and also something that we didn't mention last time uh, is that if you are listening and you're like, I have a business and I want to advertise on this cool podcast, uh, shoot us an email at um, close encounters of the blurred kind at gmail.com. Um, and we will put that in the description as well, the yes, contact us absolutely. email. Mm -hmm. uh, Kenna, do you have anything to promote? And tell us about your <coughs> Patreon, if you have any projects coming up. Oh, no, I don't really have anything going on. I'm kind of on a, like, an official hiatus, I guess. I'm kind of trying to, you know, slow it down, take a break, figure out my real life. Um, but I do have a Patreon, um, my current TikTok account, because I just, like, real low-key deactivated <laughs> at 250k and was like, I don't want to do that anymore. Uh, if you're looking for me, I am now at Mouse Abolition. I'm also Mouse Abolition on Twitter. And I don't remember my Instagram handle, but if you find my TikTok, you can find that. <laughs> I have a link tree in the TikTok account, so I just kind of let that speak for it. I don't explain my handles anymore, I because I'm not trying to grow. I'm not trying to promote. Weaver, do you have anything to promote? I want to tell everybody about Primordium again. Currently, Primordium is just like once a week on Tuesdays, and the co-hosts like rotate choosing the readings. Um, we do a read aloud around 6, 6.30 Eastern Standard Time on uh, my friend Madeline's Twitch channel, The Eclectic Library. Uh, and that read aloud is open to everybody. Uh, but if you would like to participate in the group discussion in the Primordium Discord server, all you got to do is subscribe to one of us on Patreon. Um, Parker, did you have anything to promote? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> last, last but not least. <laughs> uh Patreon and YouTube are my primary things. Um, YouTube, uh, support the Patreon so that I have more stuff on YouTube so I don't have to work as much in my day-to-day. -day. Um, uh, the Patreon has exclusive, uh, like, in case people don't know, um, I'm also a musician. I have, like, demos and other projects and stuff up on Spotify, SoundCloud, Tidal, and all other uh, forms of listening to things. Um, the like my my stage name for that is witch hazel but um i have like song demos for things that i haven't released yet um at all stages of production that are up on patreon my patreon is humble tortoise my youtube is humble tortoise um just go and support that 
Hannah, for for me, I like first off, I didn't actually know until earlier this week that Night of the Living Dead was black horror. I I had heard about it. I knew that it was like a really really yeah. like popular no zombie movie. I had no idea until I saw literally like the the part of the the movie like at the end where he's shot um like oh right it was because i was i was i I watched a a short clip of jordan peele discussing that versus like um his ending in in get out yeah Um, how it was inspired i remember saying that yeah and like there's i think there's there's something to be said about um like i'm i've been doing poetry professionally for like almost a decade now um a little bit over a decade now and like how do you and so like my my brain always goes to there's a style of poetry that's an erasure poem um and so you take a poem that already exists or any piece of text that exists and you black it out until its meaning is completely changed how do you think that the horror genre has made an erasure poem of the black experience um and more specifically how do you um how do you think um, by reclaiming those blacked out spaces, uh, modern and, um, you know, like what would you like to see made spectacle by professionals in the, by black professionals in the, in the horror industry? Like what's happening now that you enjoy? What's, what would you like to see more of? Um, like, just, 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 can you, can you speak on that at all? Yeah, I, I think one, that's a really good question. And I think one of the things that's most interesting about black horror um, is that it's one of the few, um, I w- like few art movements led by black people that has been able to maintain mainstream popularity without kind of having to assimilate to whiteness. Like I genuinely feel as Jordan Peele's filmography goes on, he is talking less and less to a white audience like most white people i know love get out and then like didn't really get us or no and it's because like get out is a movie about the fear of whiteness and the danger that whiteness poses to black people and white people being able to have that frame of reference and that character they relate to is what allows them to understand that film so much better it's also why a lot of times his movies by when white people are analyzing them get spoiled down to being about white supremacy um mm-hmm. professional critics don't do that a whole lot people do it in my comments all the time and it always drives me nuts um but i think a part of the reason why that's the case and it's one of those things where it's a very double-edged sword is because at the end of the day black horror still allows white mainstream audiences to see black people and roles and stories that line up with what we've done before. Black horror is by virtue of being black horror, a lot of brutalization. It's a lot of trauma. It's a lot of dealing with the anxiety and the hardships of being black. And even if that's told through allegory, it's still a very different experience to watch as a black person than it is as a white person. And so I think one of the things that black horror like i want to see come out of black horror is not necessarily black horror moving in any one particular genre i would love to see black horror kind of instill the idea in white people's minds that we have always been here creating things in our own way and that these things all have their own value like i would love to see afrofuturism and afro fantasy hit like the mainstream appreciation and acclaim that black horror is hitting because black horror, because you're talking about the things that scare you and because you're dealing with fear, black horror is very rarely uplifting or empowering. A lot of times it functions more as a form of catharsis. Like I would not say that I walked away from get out or us or nope feel well nope is a little bit of a different story because that's literally about how kiki palmer uses the power of black filmmaking to save her family's farm um so nope is definitely a little bit different um and just tangentially i think watching jordan peele become more conscious of how particularly black women are represented in his films has Mm. been incredibly wonderful to see because that's one of my Mm. biggest complaints about Spike Lee as a director is that black women always fulfill 
a very specific role in his films and it's one that is meant to be subversive but once like if you're creating tropes for anybody in your movies or you're leaning out of subversive like spike lee is always very much trying to make the point that this black woman has been saying the thing the whole time the thing we should all be paying attention to the whole time but nobody's listening to her because she's a little bit of a nag like that's every black woman in a spike glee movie and mm-hmm. with Jordan Peele, I think you see in the first movie, Georgina is one of the only black characters who, like, doesn't get a chance to really break out of her uh, being coagulated. And she's the one who gets left behind. And it's very much meant to serve as, like, a very emotional moment for Chris. You know, he has yes. that moment of seeing the deer left on the side of the road to die like his mom did. He has, he's been leaving Georgina behind is difficult for that exact same reason. But at the end of the day, you are still using a black man to service the emotional develop, or a black woman to service the emotional development of a black man's story. Yeah. And so him coming out with us right after that, which is all about Lupita Nyong'o and is all mm-hmm. about her performance mm-hmm. and her story and that fear of kind of knowing you could be replaced at any second and that who you are doesn't really have intrinsic value. It's the space that you fill. To me, that was everything I needed to know about how Jordan Peele was growing and thinking as an artist. And I don't know, like, any white person who got us appropriately. Like, every white person's no, take on us has been, like, so, so bad. And, like, they've missed They're just, like, it's capitalism. <laughs> I know. Oh, you can't, I don't know if you guys ever watched, like, uh, film theory, like, Matt Pat or whatever. Like, sometimes I just watch it just to make fun of it because he's such a bad critic. But anyway, um, he, he talks about, when he talks about us, he's like, the secret of us is that, like, it's about consumerism and, like, nobody could tell the difference between like Adelaide and like when she was the unspoken and it's like no the difference they could tell the difference like the, she was different when she came back that's not the point the point is that there was no difference like it is it is you you are the same as these other people the tethered and so you can switch places and have a radically different experience because you're in, put in a different context it's not that oh it, anybody is just replaceable it's that you know there are people who live in a radically different context than other people and that is the only thing that separates them <laughs> I with us that was that was one of the things that I was like I this looks like it's gonna freak me the the hell out I don't want to see it I need to support Jordan Peele so that more things like this are made um and so I went to go see it and it was like after we got out of it we were having um because because Robin's also like a really really big like like film buff um and so we we did have a lot of questions about uh, or not questions but we were having a lot of commentary um about the ways that capitalism can be applied to it but the thing that it's again it's the context and it's the lack of experience because it's like even if you do look at at it through a capitalist lens if you're white you're still not going to get it because if it's capitalism is inherently like so many other things if you are not white it is a completely different experience if you want to say that um that us is uh its main like the villain is capitalism it's like okay cool but it's capitalism while being a black woman which is a completely different experience um also on that, I wrote down another question because I did have to take notes. Um, so uh, thinking back, this is something that you uh, recently brought up again. But um, so thinking back to trauma um, being made a spectacle by black artists in music and in media. Um, Kenna, do you think it's possible to create media as a black uh, American or a black person in Western society through a lens that is not intrinsically and unavoidably um, and inevitably tied to trauma? Like as a black question. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I am generally of the opinion that I mean, I kind of feel the same way about that question as I do when people bring up the idea of a female gaze, which the way that like male versus female gaze and what the female gaze actually means in a film context has been understand. No, not remotely. I stopped dressing for the female gaze. Like, stop, please. That's that's not what happens. But the thing about a female gaze and the thing about the male gaze is really what's being described with the male gaze is that men have an ability to create movies without having to cow down to systems of oppression. That's literally what it is. And nobody else has that right. That's what allows the male gaze to exist. If men were answering to, like, women who were in studio production positions, that upskirting shot probably wouldn't fly like that's essentially the idea behind the male gaze and so i definitely think that there is a world where it is possible to be a black filmmaker who is not making 
film and art that ties back in any way to trauma, but I don't think we're going to see it until racism goes away is the really unfortunate thing. I think a lot of times people forget how inherently political art is, not just in terms of like film historically has been used to push a dozen political agendas, but also just like Mm -hmm. artists are generally people who are specifically trying to respond to the cultural zeitgeist that they are living through. One of my favorite things about the movie Get Out is not just that the movie was made, but how intentional that movie is in the way that it was made. It was, similarly with Night of the Living Dead, Jordan Peele was considering having Chris be arrested. He was going to have it actually be cop cars and cops were going to pull off and he was cops were going to pull up and he was either going to be arrested or shot and blamed for the death of I just forgot their names. The white people. Uh, um, <laughs> Armitage. Armitage. Yeah. Armitage. I knew it was something ridiculous like that. White people last names right. are so funny. Like. Um, <laughs> but a huge part of the reason why he decided to have Chris survive the end of that movie is because ultimately he decided that the most subversive thing you could do with a black man in a horror movie have is have him survive. Yeah. And specifically yeah. to have him be saved by a member of the community. I think that's yeah. the most revolutionary mm-hmm. thing about the ending of Get Out is that like Rod goes to the cops. Even the black cops don't take him seriously. Exactly. And so what mm-hmm. saves what saves Chris is not just another black person. It's another black person who is in community with him. Because the fear of, like, yeah. not all skin folk are kin folk is a massive, massive theme yes. and get out. Yes. And so I think the fact that Jordan Peele was able to sit down and be like, is what my community really needs to see more black people dying is, like... Yeah. It's, it's interesting because even when you are making the choice not to inflict more violence on a black character, that is still mm-hmm. a choice being driven by black trauma. Just yeah. because you yeah. don't As you're really watching have it, you're thinking when you see the police lights, you're like, I know what I was yeah. watching. It's like, oh shit, yeah. oh god. You're thinking, <laughs> I know how this goes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, when, I, when I saw Get Out, um, I was lucky enough that I saw it in a, um, it's it's one of the reason why I'm so obsessed with this movie, um, as well as so many other people, is because Get Out is something that like, the movie changes depending on your experience and the experience of the people around you. That's insane. I love that so much. The fact that it is hyper subjective and it calls into uh, like it, it really like puts under a micro- microscope the subjectivity and the internal biases of yourself and also the people around you to the point where the movie changes. Depend Like the way that Coraline is either a horror or an adventure, depending on your age. That's what um, that's that's what um, Get Out is, depending on your race. And it's amazing. And um, so I was lucky enough. I saw Get Out um, also in theaters. Um, gotta support the black dollar but um i i i saw get out with um with my partner again and it was specifically we were in a mixed audience um in the middle of new york city um so it was <laughs> it was actually um to 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 kind of speed run how the audience handled it um there was a interracial couple there was a white girl and a black guy who walked in holding hands um that's bold. at the it end bold at the end that movie at, <laughs> At the end of the, and it was like within the first week of it coming out, right? So maybe they did, they weren't prepared. Um, They walked in, they were holding hands. We passed by them. They were like all lovey-dovey. At the end of the movie, we walked out at the same time. He was not speaking to her. Um, And I know my partner said that, um, I know my partner said that halfway through, also on the subway home with my my friend and my partner, I was like, there were were like white tourists across the subway from us. And I was like, I'm going to avoid this this eye contact right now because I'm a a little spooked. Um, Also, just because I I had... Yeah, but also like I had also um realized that um do you guys are you guys aware of the 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 cookbook called The Delectable Negro? Yep. Mhm. Yes. Um so uh it's, it, it's it's a cookbook on how to how to make black people delicious uh in the in the kitchen. Basically, let's let that's that literally it's it's a it's a book on cannibalizing black people. I I have not stopped thinking about it since I found out that it was a thing. Also delectable. How can you? I think you can it's still buy it on Amazon. Yeah. No, it's it's available on Amazon, yeah. I believe. Um <laughs> like it's fucking uh like it's Noma. But anyway, so I so yeah, basically like um my my partner while we, uh they were sitting in front of us that couple and halfway through the movie um like apparently he had like 
taken her hand off of his and kind of like leaned away from her, um, which I think is hilarious. Um, but uh, ah. yeah, but it's it's also like so so the it's just I was I was able to see in real time at the end of it and i'm sure like anybody else who who had a uh generally like mixed theater and like a generally like um uh i don't want to say integrated area but i can't think of another word <laughs> but yeah like you know it's the middle of new york city it's like a friday or saturday night like it's it there's a bunch of like folks from all different backgrounds in this theater at the end of that movie when the sirens went off the majority of the people there like all of the people of color of which there were many thank god um we gasped we were like oh no i i'm very loud in movie theaters um i'm that person that does the funny commentary um but which i was like another oh, stereotype about black people like, oh, like, oh, think about. Yeah. that's yeah we, where the we term peanut gallery comes from point. but yeah, yeah. like Oh, because the, the upper the upper balcony not in the George theaters, Washington Carver. No, the the upper the upper <laughs> no. balcony in theaters was where all the black people sat, and it was like stereo- stereotypical that they like ate peanuts as snacks during during when they went to the theater, and they were like stereotyped as like very loud and rowdy. So that's where the the peanut gallery. Yeah, yeah. everything what? is racist. <laughs> stereotypes about like people in this about black people in this country um are just the funniest things because it's like we'll just be doing something and people will be like yeah i bet you do sit down all you all you black people you just love to sit down and then 60 years years later there's like a we're we're called sitters for no reason and it's like where did that like that's how it works this is like like, a completely um, opposite direction and i know we really need to wrap up because kenna was like i need to go at three um, but I, I've, I've been reading a book called The Golden Thread, How Fabric Shaped the World. And there's a chapter on cotton. And something that is interesting is that white countries were selling cotton fabric to Africans in exchange for slaves. They were selling so- cotton fabric to the Africans. And so, like, what we consider african print fabrics like the the wax prints that is not from africa that is from the netherlands the dutch colonized indonesia and indonesian people had like pioneered batik and so the dutch were like oh we can do like this artificial mass produced batik but the indonesians were like well we don't want that we want our own stuff but the like nigerian and like west african people that like the dutch egypt east india trading company or whatever um had been employing were like hey we like those bright colors but we you know we want you to do them in like the designs we like and so the netherlands started producing this like wax print fabric for the west african market and it was very like loud bright colors very based on like what africans were into now on the other side of the pond um uh, there was this whole, there was this, you know, slaves were really only allowed to wear, like, very, like, ugly, like, very plain clothes. And whenever they had the ability, they would, they were drawn to individuality, to bright colors. Like, any chance they got, you know, they put, like, clashing colors together. And the white people around them were like, oh, they have no sense of fashion. This comes out of nowhere. They, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, meanwhile, on the other side of the world their cousins the west africans were like culturally we value bright colors that is something that we enjoy Mm. that is something Mm -hmm. that is baked into our culture and then on the other side of the world they're like why do these slaves keep wearing bright garish colors that don't go together it must be a mystery like which is also so interesting because that's still like a i remember one of the first times when i was younger um i i used to like me and my siblings would just get like we're all very close in age so all of us would like just get clothes at the same time um it's like yeah one of y'all got a new shirt all of you guys have a new shirt and so we used to just have like it was a powerpuff thing kind of going on it's like you're blue you're green you're yellow or like you're orange you're pink you're red today (laughs) um and i remember this one time i had visit uh visited family um and it was family that I didn't I hadn't met before I was like six or seven years old and I was wearing this like bright orange shirt and like I'm a I'm a brown skin person um generally speaking that's how I identify and um like I remember one of my uh 
aunts or something. Um, when you have enough family, it's everybody is an aunt or something. Um, but uh, one of my aunts or something just looked at me while I was like playing around with like my younger sisters um, in like in the sun in like the Midwest, uh, and they were like, ah, like, and it was like this this old dark skinned black woman. Um, from like the South slash Midwest. And she was like, oh, I thought we were too dark to wear bright colors. That orange looks really nice on you. And that was the first time that I had ever encountered the stigma of like, like dark people shouldn't be wearing bright colors, which is a huge thing. Like a lot of, um, especially with uh, Lupita Nyong'o, like a lot of people have been like, what is she doing wearing that like powder pink? But like, it looks good on us is the thing well, as say, well. Like it col bright colors look amazing, amazing on dark skin. They look so... <laughs> So good. Like colored amazing. hair. I'm, like bright pink I'm hair a, on a dark skinned person. One hundred percent. I'm not a. I'm not the best example because all my whole closet's like black, green, a different shade of green. I have three white shirts. Two of them I wear to the gym. Like I'm not a great example of like the bright colors, but like I have a color that I commit to at the very least, and I can acknowledge like now that like that. Um, and also I think that uh, I mean going back to to bring it back to to spectacle that's also a thing that's happened a lot in the black community even outside of horror but also like is it again like is it is it possible like as with society as we know it to to do anything that makes us happy that's not tied to trauma in some way as a black person in like western society because even wearing bright colors is tied to that the hyper awareness of self one and two um the hyper awareness of self the hyper awareness of exposing yourself to violence because you are being othered more than and you already noticeable were instead um, which, of blending in yeah exactly which is which is you know which is the the myth as well which perpetuates um and like uh comes from the the myth that if we are very very good negroes we're not going to be hated by other folks it's like there's nothing that's going to make my skin an acceptable shade to somebody with an internalized bias even if they don't want to admit it you know like it's just every every the act of existing is is spectacle which is interesting when you relate it to trauma in Western society. I'm sorry, y'all activated my hyper focus yeah, this episode. We, we, we've got to be wrapping up, but I think I think yeah, the closing yeah. message for this episode is: be the monster everyone already thinks you are. Be the monster. Be a monster. Yeah. Be, be the, the monster. Yes. <laughs> be That's the today's yes. slogan. Yes. Yes. Be a monster. And also about zombies. Oh, and about zombies, circling back to zombies, just as a closing thing, because this was a question I wanted to ask yes. Kenna anyway. Can you elaborate a little bit on what you were saying about how white people don't do zombies correctly and how zombies are supposed to be black? I know that we're trying to, as in like a, a TLDR, <laughs> quick and dirty about that. The, the quick and dirty of zombies are supposed to be black is that zombies with an eye, because I always distinguish between zombies with an eye and zombies with an IE, yes, because that's, they come from yeah. So, uh, if and people argue all the time that like zombies can't possibly be appropriated because zombie folklore has taken off so far in movies, it's its own thing. No, it's not, because the way that zombies came to the silver screen, to horror movies, is mm -hmm. through a movie called White Zombie. And in the movie White Zombie, they actually do acknowledge that zombies originate in Haitian folklore. Uh, it's Bela Lugosi, who is like, you know it's classic horror if Bela Lugosi's in it. That's Dracula. Yeah. He's in like a million different classic horror movies. Um, but he plays like a, a evil voodoo hypnotist. And the way that uh, typical Haitian zombies were created is it was basically you had like, I'm going to pronounce this word wrong because I've only ever read it, but you had a sonambulist, like somebody who was able to put people into a kind of trance-like yeah. state and they would then yeah. use them for labor. And so these people would yes. go missing and loved ones would see this loved one who was thought to be dead tilling somebody else's field. And that's where the idea of a zombie comes from. And so in the movie White Zombie, you have Bela Lugosi, our evil voodoo doctor, who has kind of created this process to turn people into zombies. Um, and it's a deeply weird fucked up movie. Like, it's basically about this white couple who goes to visit him for I can't even remember why. Um, and basically, like, this guy wants to marry his girlfriend. So he has the evil voodoo doctor, like, turn her into a zombie so he can better control her. Um, and it turns out that this is something that he has been doing to, like, all of his enemies and people who cross him is turning them into zombies and keeping them under his control. And so 
one of the really funny things about Night of the Living Dead is that it's called Night of the Living Dead and not something something zombie because George Romero wasn't really trying to do a zombie movie he was with to that do, film. Like, a different because zombies he acknowledged was like a different thing already, but everybody just assumed exactly and and so it became what pushed this i refer to them as shamblers because there's a lot of like zombies who run in uh modern media now but the concept is a kind of yeah yeah. romero's and i i don't know i think it's so funny that they get called that (laughs) because he didn't even want them to be zombies but yeah the terms the word zombie does not actually get used in george romero's films until the second one which is dawn of the dead um, which is a hundred percent about consumerism. That's part of the reason why I get so mad when people say us is just about consumerism. It's because like if you want like George Romero did that already, yeah. that's the reason why Jordan Peele wanted to make it more than that. Like it takes place in a mall. It's very on the nose. Um, um I was, I was gonna yeah. say real quick that because like the zombies of Haitian folklore are so tied to this like ancestral black fear of being forced to do labor against your will. Um, I think in some regards we can consider Get Out to be a zombie movie. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's a body snatching movie, but it's the same kind of concept. Yeah, yeah, in the the original original sense sense of the the Haitian zombies. That's really interesting that I hadn't even considered that. It's also why some of the only zombies I rock with are Korean zombies. Like, I don't, I love any zombies, but when you're talking mm-hmm. about, like, when it comes to, like, an actual analytical execution of zombies, I think Korean film and Korean cinema is the closest yeah. to, like, a tried and true representation of zombies that we've seen thus far, just because black people don't have that kind of, like, creative control here in America. In Korea, you're talking about a more, like, unified population in terms of race. Um, but Korean zombies have everything to do with what is one of the big pillars of fear in Haitian zombies, which is the loss of agency and an inability to decide for yourself what you want to do. It's definitely a big thing that's hit on in Train to Busan, which is one of my favorite zombie movies of all time. Like, those zombies don't even have object permanence. They have no idea what they're doing. And one of the most heartbreaking scenes in that entire movie is you follow this pair of, like, elderly sisters and eventually one of them turns into a zombie. And there's a scene where the sister is looking at her zombified sister through the clear window of the train. And you can just see that there's nothing behind the eyes. She's not even really looking at her. It's just somebody completely gone. And um, there's a, a series called All of Us Are Dead that like blatantly is trying to like kind of copy and paste the zombies from train to busan like there's literally a scene where because it takes place in a high school one of the characters looks out the window sees zombies like eating his classmates and he turns back to his friends and he's like guys it's train to busan (laughs) 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 at least it's self-aware that's what it was doing (laughs) but in that series zombieism is very much used as an allegory for adolescence And specifically, Mm, one of the recent events that happened in South Korea that people brought up a lot when talking about this project um, is there was a ferry incident where basically there was a group of students who were on a ferry that was sinking and the adults and the crew all abandoned ship. And a lot of these kids died because they were ordered to stay put in their rooms and they listened because there's a very heavy expectation of obedience that we put on adolescents and youth. And so one of the big themes in All of Us Are Dead is that the teachers are useless. Like, one of the first mm-hmm. things you see happen um, in All of Us Are Dead is one of the teachers has been bitten, and he locks himself in with a room full of students, knowing he's a danger to all of them, because he wants oh. to save his own skin. The principal spends most of his time hiding under his desk. Um, there's very few teachers. The outbreak actually starts because of their chemistry teacher. Their chemistry teacher is trying to, like, engineer some type of thing to make his son who keeps getting bullied more aggressive and it ends up becoming a zombie virus and so it's like by trying to push this toxic masculine identity onto his kid this teacher poisons an entire school and causes an entire zombie outbreak um and one of the things that happens when the um teenagers become zombies is because there's a part where a, a character who you've been with for a while starts to turn into a zombie their perception of the world around them changes completely. It's like this kid has been best friends with one of the other members of the survivor group for forever. They're best friends. He's like the most good-natured, loving, welcoming, tries-to-make-everybody-feel-at-home character. 
And as he's turning, he starts saying things like, why are you all laughing at me? Why are you all saying these things? And he's hearing all kinds of insults and his friends' voices. And you're seeing their faces become warped. And it's like that teenage fear of becoming the outsider. But becoming the outsider in a zombie movie means you're dead. Yeah, it's devastating. All of us are dead is one of the best pieces of zombie media I've seen in a long time. And I know that because it made me feel sick to my stomach. Oh my god. I... (laughs) Oh Jesus. Well, on that note, on that wonderful note, I'm going to circle yep. back to be the monster everybody thinks you are because that's like a vaguely happy note. Um, yes. That is also the summary of All of Us Are Dead <laughs> yeah. is that you find out that there are some zombies who are able to maintain agency throughout this aggressive state. And so be the monster. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yes. Um, thank you guys for joining us. Um, I'm going to just say, if you are watching this on YouTube, make sure to like, subscribe, and leave a comment. And don't forget to check us sure. out on the podcatcher of your choice if you want to listen to us on the go. And if you are podcast listeners, uh, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. The reviews are really going to help us during these first few weeks. And if you're a podcast listener, be sure to check us out on YouTube because there's a lot of cool graphics. You get to see all our funny faces. And if you'd like to support us more directly, again, you can become one of our Patreon patrons. Those links are in the description. Uh, And again, if you'd like to inquire about being a sponsor, shoot us an email at closeencountersoftheblurredkind at uh, gmail.com. Finally, thank you to Jariah for the use of the song Enter, A Beginner's Guide to Faking Your Death. What a fitting song title uh, as the intro and outro to our show. All right, everybody, stay blurdy. Stay blurdy. (laughs) 